Well, we come to the point when we uh, turn to our Bibles and uh, we're going to read from John chapter 1. We're continuing our studies in John's Gospel. We're at the part that is known not really just as the introduction but as the prologue uh, to the book. And the reading today concludes that prologue. We're going to read from verses 14 to 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Amen. May God's word uh, touch our hearts as we think about it today. Uh, This morning... Uh, We're going to be thinking about one of the greatest statements that is found in the pages of the Bible. That's that first phrase of verse 14 that we read. And the Word became flesh. Absolutely staggering. This, This is John's Christmas account. No mention of a stable. No mention of shepherds. No wise men here. They are all given by the other gospel uh, accounts. John looks at things from a different perspective. John looks at things and the angle that he takes is from heaven's point of view. It's almost like an eagle that's looking down at the events that took place at Christmas, the incarnation, the birth of Christ, And he's looking at it from this perspective when he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, the first few verses of the the prologue have already told us something about the word. The word who was eternal, who before things came into existence had always existed. The word who was God and yet was with God, the Trinity. The Word who was pre-existent, as we spoke about a couple of weeks back, who was co-existent with God and was self-existent with life in himself. That is the Word who becomes flesh and dwells among us. And we we read his, his name, for the first time when we get down uh, to verse number 17. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The Savior, Jesus the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One who had been promised and chosen by God. This is the Word, the full expression of God who now becomes flesh and reveals God and demonstrates God to the human race. The Word became 
flesh. There's a tremendous phrase that I would like you to note or jot jot down. Many of the old commentators use this. And it's this. In doing this, he becomes what he had never become before. What he had never been before. He becomes human. And yet at the same time, he never stops being what he always was. That is divine. Will I say that again? In becoming flesh, he never stopped being what he always was. And yet he became what he had never been before. That is the wonder and the mystery of the, of the birth of Christ. As Paul writes to Timothy later on, great is this mystery of godliness that God is manifest in the flesh. Fully God, fully man. What a mystery. 100% God, 100% perfect humanity. Not 50-50, not God somehow living within a human body or a human shell. But we have perfect, sinless humanity. Divine and human. Now, many of the old Christmas carols, I was almost tempted uh, to ask for a couple of Christmas carols to be sung today as part of our hymns and thought, well, maybe it just might jar a little bit. But many of these old Christmas carols really capture this point. You know, they must have been reading John's Gospel when they penned some of the the words. Let, let, Let me quote one of them to you. God of God. Light of light. Verily God, yet become truly human. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. O come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Now John employs a very interesting word picture to to help us grasp this concept of the word becoming flesh. Look at how how it goes on to read in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, you don't see the word picture on the surface there, really. But if if you look a little bit deeper into it, the actual reading is, he pitched his tent among our tent. Now, if you think about that as an analogy of how we live our lives, you know, Our tent has pitched for a while on the face of this earth. And what has happened? The Word of God, the Son of God comes and he he pitches his tent. He sets his tent up in the middle of our tents. In fact, it's a bit more than that because it's actually talking about, and it has in the background, a specific tent in mind that we find in the Old Testament that you saw a picture of a minute or two ago. Because the word actually is, the word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. In the same way as God said to Moses all those centuries ago that he wanted to live among his people, build a tent, build a tabernacle. Here are the specifications You all pitch your tents round about it. I will be in the middle. I will be in the center. And God will come down and live among his people. 
And yet, although that was the case at a particular level, God was always at a distance. They couldn't really directly come to God because of the the curtain and because of the various stages and the various partitions and the parts of the ceremony that kept people away. And yet now in Christ, that was a picture. And in Christ, in the fullest extent, we have God actually pitching his tent in a much more significant way than in that ancient tabernacle. God, the word, becomes flesh and he tabernacles among us. And we learn something about the full significance of that, for instance, at the cross. When the Lord Jesus died, and when he said at his death, it is finished, and it was recorded that the the veil in the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, so that now humanity can have free access through Christ to God himself in a way that that could never have happened before. And so that is the word picture that John brings to us here. The word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. Now to try and help us really understand and appreciate this point, um, I'm going to highlight three, three words that come out of the reading. These are the points that I've got. Um, I want to speak to you, you'll see this one in verse 14, first of all, about his glory. You see that? And then I want to speak to you, verse 15, about his rank. And then finally, I want to say something in verse 16 about his fullness. His glory, his rank, and his fullness. Glory. The Bible describes Christ's glory in a number of ways. Look, look at how our verse reads. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. John says that. You know, we lived among him. We, we saw his glory. Again, if you go down to the end of the incident in John chapter 2 about the turning of water into wine at the wedding, it says, and he showed his glory. And on so many occasions, there was something special that shone from Christ. Now, there is what is referred to as Christ's essential glory. Now, you get that at the transfiguration. You know, Moses, uh, sorry, Peter, James, and John are taken up, and Christ is transfigured before them. His face becomes shining white. His, his clothes shine. His face is like the sun. You know, and it's almost like the curtain is pulled aside and they, they see something of the essential glory of Christ. They saw his glory. That's one part. Second part is there is also what we might call the moral glory of Christ. And the way that he conducts himself, his behavior, his attitudes, his words, his sayings. And that is, to some extent, what we have here. And yet, what we have is something that is in wonderful balance. Now, let me just try and explain what I mean by that. Because there are two things that come after this word glory in verse 14. We've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son... From the Father, 
full of grace and truth. And that's the description of the glory here. We looked at him, we lived among him, we saw him, and what we saw was glorious. Because we saw somebody who was both full of grace and at the same time was full of truth. Now that's a remarkable statement. Because you never really find that anywhere else. How they almost seem to be intention, you would have thought. How can grace and, and truth be fully present in, in, in Christ? You know, for instance, um, later down in verse number 17, this is mentioned again. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So you've got the law with its harsh demands, it's unbending, it's unyielding, you have to come up to this, you know, um, and there's no leeway on that. And so there is a rigidity about the law, the truth, the truth of the law, you know, and there's nothing kind of gracious about that. You know, sometimes you can be rigid and hard and harsh. On the other hand, you might be sentimental and soft. But in Christ, there is a perfect balance between both of them. There is the truth, and yet at the same time there is the graciousness and the kindness of Christ. That's a glorious thing. We beheld his glory. Here is the glory of Christ that we present this morning for us to contemplate and for us to behold as well as we think about him with the eyes of, of faith in our hearts, to behold the glory of Christ, full of grace, full of truth. You know, there's a, there's a psalm, some of us were reading this actually at the early Friday morning prayer meeting, Psalm 85 on Friday there, where it, where it says, Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace have kissed in Christ. Things that seem to be attention are found in tremendous balance and, and, and seen in its clearest, actually, at the death of Christ upon the cross. Both of these things. How is it possible, says Paul in Romans chapter 3, how is it possible that, that God on the one hand can be just and true and maintain his standards and yet at the same time he can, he can justify, he can forgive, he can declare righteous the person who believes in Jesus. Is it possible for God to be able to do that to people like us? And to, to declare us righteous? And yet still be... Of course it can. The wonder of it all is that the, the death of Christ does that. Because sin... And, and, and all the tragedy of the curse of the fall of man is all dealt with by Christ upon the cross. And it is a demonstration of God's love at the same time. And there's the glory of Christ. You know, it's for us to, to grasp that ourselves. John said we beheld his glory. Can I say that? You know, as I think about him, and I, I think that's my conclusion as well. The glorious nature of Christ, full of grace and truth. The only one, the unique Son, the loved Son, who came from the Father. Now secondly, I'd like, I'd like to pick up on this idea of, of his rank. 
Now you see that um, in verse number 15. John, now this is, this is another John. This is John the Baptist, the, the, the forerunner of Christ, the announcer of Christ, who, who bore witness about him. And he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, before, because he was before me. Now, what that means is this, that in a human sense, Jesus was younger than John the Baptist, who was his cousin. John arrived on the scene first. He was a celebrity first. And uh, as part of what he did, though, he paved the way for the coming of Christ. And as he paved the way, he said, although in one sense, I've come first. There is somebody who comes after me who ranks above me because he was before me. Now, we all know what rank means, I guess, in military sense. You know, if you're a, a sergeant, you're above the private. If you're a general, you're above the sergeant. And you can pull rank. And people understand that position, status, levels of importance. And what he's saying here is, as far as rank is concerned, and as far as existence is concerned, here is somebody who outranks me. In fact, Jesus said about John the Baptist, if you think about this whole idea of rank, John was a prophet. Okay? In fact, he says there was no greater prophet than John the Baptist. So in the, in the scheme of ranking, that's where John stood. The greatest of all the prophets was John the Baptist. And if you think about this whole idea of rank in general, can I maybe take you to in your minds, or you want to flick it up to Hebrews chapter 2? It's talking about the birth of Christ again. And it says, quoting Psalm 8, it says... He became a little lower than the angels. So you think about the ranking system as far as how God's creation goes. Humanity ranks a little lower than the angels. And, and Christ took humanity. And in that sense, he became a little lower than the angels for a period of time. Remarkable. There's humanity that comes above animal life. We were reminded about that. God's special creation, made in the image of God. God breathed into the nostrils of, of Adam the breath of life. Animals, man, angels. There are archangels who are above the run-of-the-mill angels, if you like. Now let's turn to a verse that gives us some idea of the rank of Christ. It's found in Ephesians chapter 1. We've done this relatively recently. And it's a verse that talks about the uh, resurrection and the ascension of Christ after his death back to heaven. And Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, reads like this, talking about his exaltation and him being seated 
at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. It says this, and think about the rank, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things, God put all things under his feet. There's the rank of Christ. No one has higher rank than Christ. This is the greatness of the Word who became flesh. Now the question, of course, is how does Christ rank in estimation in our lives? Where does he rank in importance? John said, he ranks away above me. Here is the greatness of Christ. Now, as we close, let's uh, look at the final, the final point. And the final point is this. Verse 16, where it says, From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. His fullness. The fullness of Christ. What does that mean? Well, there, there is tremendous spiritual fullness in Christ. John, along with the early Christians, could say that from that fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace is God's favor that is not merited by us. God's kindness and love that is not deserved. And, and he said, we've received that. You know, it's, it's one grace piled up upon another grace. Piled up upon another grace. It's like something that is poured into a cup and shaken down and pressed together and it's, and it's running over. It's like the waves that crash upon the beach. You know, not just one of them, but another and another it's the, it's the grace upon grace that comes to those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ out of his spiritual bounty, out of the fullness of Christ's resources, limitless resources. You know, it's like the parable that the Lord Jesus spoke about. Uh, he was describing this kind of thing like, like a tremendous banquet you know, that is provided. And uh, the, the, the tables are heaving under the weight of the food. There is so much. There's surplus. There is the best of fare. Everything is provided. And the great invitation goes out from Christ. Come. You know, everything is ready. You know, when I read that, I always think about the uh, cry of Christ from the cross. It's, it's finished. Everything has been done. It's all been prepared. There is tremendous sufficiency in Christ and in what his death has provided. And, and the fear, the spiritual fear, you know, as we, as we look at it, you know, we're not looking at creme brulee or whatever. We're thinking about forgiveness of my guilt and my sin. We're thinking about change 
of identity that I now can be a child of God, that I can receive new life, spiritual birth, and so many more things. He says, come on, everything is provided. There is grace upon grace. And when Christ told that parable, he went on to say, and they all began to make excuse. Didn't want to come. Had other better things to do. Had no interest. Until Christ said, go out into the highways. Go out into the streets. Go out into the country lanes, underneath the hedges, into the doorways. You know, compel the rest of the people. Anyone can come. There is such sufficiency, there is such bounty, such fullness in Christ that we can receive and taste and see that the Lord is good. What fullness. You know, that's why, you know, John bore witness about him. He had experienced that. That's why John the Apostle writes these words so that we might all believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the whole point and purpose of a service like this, so that again we can be confronted with the greatness and glory of Christ and all his fullness and sufficiency. And we bear witness to him as well that this is the Savior of the world. This is the Word of God who became flesh and he lived among us. And his glory was seen. And it's for us to receive, receive of his fullness, grace upon grace. You know, we can all receive that. You might say, well, how do you receive that? How does that actually work out? Well, you speak to him in prayer. The living Christ who rose from the dead and is now in heaven, who will come back one day. But we speak to a person and we speak in response to his word. And basically, the way you receive Christ, three things. Number one, as you speak to him, you admit to your failures, particularly your unbelief and your rejection of Christ himself. Number two, as you speak to him, you acknowledge Christ himself as the great God of heaven and the Savior of sinners. And point number three, as you pray, you ask for forgiveness. In the words of one of the parables, you say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. You look at Christ, you look at his greatness and glory, you see the sufficiency of what he provides through his death and his resurrection to meet my great need. And you say, you know, I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And you look on him as your only hope. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said. Nobody comes to the Father 
except through me. So with these words there, John ends his, his introduction, uh, this prologue to his great book. And with those words of introduction, he, he, he sets the scene for the great account of his life of Christ. What fullness, what, what richness, what, what bounty is in store for us as we begin to walk through these next few chapters. And as we discover in detail what it really means for the Word to become flesh. Now let's pray. Lord, as we have uh, thought about these tremendous statements concerning the Lord Jesus, we pray that our eyes might be open to, to see his glory, just like John expressed when he said, we beheld his glory. Help us all have eyes to see the greatness and the glory and the fullness and the status of the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us to respond with worship um, and with a decision to, to place our complete trust in him. And so we commit each of us into your care and keeping, that your word will touch our hearts and change our lives. And help us now in particular as we move into celebrating the Lord's Supper, those of us who belong to Christ, to out of gratitude and appreciation for the greatness of the Lord Jesus, that we might lift our hearts in our worship and in our adoration to him for who he is and for all that he has done for us as we ask in his name. Amen.